0: Okay, Matthew chapter 6, and we'll read uh, verse 14 through 24 tonight. So that'll be what we're shooting for tonight. And uh, so let's read our passage, and then we'll pray and have our Bible study. Okay, Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. It says, if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness." If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time to meet together tonight. And Lord, we thank you for uh, your word. Lord, we do pray that the light within us, Lord, would not be darkness, but that we would be uh, filled with true light. Lord, the light of your word, Lord, the light of faith, Lord, of the knowledge of you and of your ways, uh, so that, Lord, we might walk in those ways that are pleasing to you, and Lord, not be led and ruled by those uh, principles that are evil and contrary to your will. So, Father, we pray that you would teach us tonight as we study your word. Lord, we pray that our obedience to you, Lord, our faithfulness would be done out of a sincere motive, Lord, because of our love for you. Lord, our desire to please you and to do those things that are consistent with your will. Lord, guard us from being a hypocrite, Lord, who only pretends uh, to serve you uh, and does so for the praise and adoration of men. Uh, So, Lord, we pray that that would not be true of us, but that we might be sincere uh, in our devotion to you. So, Lord, again, help us tonight as we study. We pray that you would be our teacher and our guide, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so we've spent the last several weeks uh, dealing with the Lord's Prayer, and we remember that the Lord's Prayer is in this section where Jesus is uh, teaching. Uh, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, he's teaching about the righteousness that must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. This is what he said uh, early, earlier on, uh, that if our righteousness does not exceed theirs, then we're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven and that we have to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. And then in chapter six, he begins to deal with uh, these issues of make sure that when you're doing these acts of devotion to God, uh, many of them are things that will be seen by others. You have to make sure that you're doing it in the right way, right? That you're not doing it by way of eye service, of man pleasing, but that you're doing it with genuine, sincere, right motives to please God and to do those things that are consistent with his will. And he's talked about that in relationship to giving to the poor. Uh, He's talked about that in relationship to prayer. And then that's when he went in to the teaching on prayer, that we shouldn't be like the hypocrites and we shouldn't be like the Gentiles. Those are the two things that are rejected. And especially the Gentiles who heap up many empty phrases and think that by their many words that they're going to be heard by God. And he says, this isn't the case at all, but rather he says, When you pray, this is how you should pray. And that's when he gives us the Lord's Prayer. Now we're going to pick up in verse 14, which is a conclusion to the Lord's Prayer. And then he turns back in verse 16 to dealing with other issues related to obedience and how it needs to be done in the proper way. And then finally, with the proper view of money, right? The proper view of money and making sure that money and wealth is not ruling us, uh, because if it does, then it's going to lead to many, many sins against God, okay? So let's go then to verse 14. Verse 14, and we've dealt with this in part uh, the other day, a couple of weeks ago, when he taught, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The reason why that is so important for us to forgive those who sin against us, we sin against God, and then others are going to sin against us. When we sin against God, we ask God to forgive us, If we sin against others, we need to go to them and ask them to forgive us. And then if someone sins against us and they come and ask for our forgiveness, then we need to extend forgiveness to them as well. So it's all the same, whether it's us against God, whether it's us against another man or whether it's another man against us, then if there is sin and it's addressed and there is confession, then there needs to be forgiveness. This is what God does for us. And this is what God expects us to do for others as well is to forgive as we have been forgiven. And if we don't forgive, what are the implications? Well, verse 14. If you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Here, if you forgive others their transgressions, if someone sins against you and they come to you with humility, They come and they confess their sin, they acknowledge it to you, they admit that what they did was wrong, and they ask for your forgiveness, then you should forgive them, right? This is what he's saying. And if you do forgive them, then your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Now, of course, he's not saying that by our forgiveness of others, we earn or merit God's forgiveness of our sins. But rather, he's simply saying that the evidence that we have been forgiven by God, right? A person. Who has had their sins forgiven by God will themselves also be a gracious person so that when someone sins against them, then they're going to forgive them if they come and ask for forgiveness. They're not gonna be holding grudges. They're not gonna say, no, I'll never forgive you because, because I can never uh, overlook what, what you've done to me. No, if they come and they ask for forgiveness, then of course we're going to extend forgiveness because what they're asking us to forgive them of is nothing in comparison of what god has already forgiven us of so how can god be so gracious and merciful to us and that not change us and make us into gracious and merciful people so the evidence that our sins are forgiven by god is that it changes us so that we ourselves become gracious and merciful people and that's what he means right the evidence the proof that a person has the forgiveness of god is that they also will forgive others they will forgive others when they sin against them but then if you don't forgive others then your father will not forgive your transgressions if you are unwilling to forgive if you are bitter and harsh and you hold a grudge and you will not forgive others but you claim to be a christian you claim that god has forgiven you of your sins he says no that's not true at all it it proves without any doubt that you have not had your sins forgiven because how can you experience such grace and mercy from God and yet not extend that to your fellow man, right? It's impossible for you to do that. So this is what he means in saying these things. Matthew chapter 18, this parable uh, that Jesus taught makes this abundantly clear, crystal clear as to what he's talking about. Matthew eighteen, verse twenty one. Says, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, His Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children, and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion, and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves, who owed him a hundred denarii, and seized him, and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed to him. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So there, the verse 33, should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you. So what mercy came first? The master to the slave and then the slave to the slave, right? That's the progression. The master had mercy on the slave and the mercy he had on the slave, the debt the slave owed to the master was far greater than what the fellow slave owed to the other slave. He had mercy on him because he pleaded with him. He forgave him. And because I did that for you, the expectation is that you then should do that for your fellow slave, but you didn't do it. And even the other slaves were deeply grieved when they saw this. They knew that it was outrageous, that this was a great scandal and something that was not right. And that's why they went and reported it to their master. So that's what he means here in this passage. As we have received mercy from God, so we ought to also have mercy on our brothers. We should forgive from the heart, our brothers, and not hold grudges against them and not throw their sin in their face all the time, right? To manipulate them, to get our way with them, to do those types of things. We shouldn't do that, but rather we should forgive them and be gracious to them if they repent. Okay, verse 16. Whenever you've asked, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you that they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Here, we have another issue. We've talked about the giving to the poor He's talked about prayer. Now, fasting, right? Fasting. Is fasting something taught in the Bible? Yes, Yes, it is. It's something that's taught and something that we are called to do, something that should be a part of the Christian life, that we should fast and pray, fast and pray, okay? So whenever you fast, you are denying yourself food. You're denying yourself food for a period of time to devote yourself to prayer to prayer to God, and when you do that, you don't want to draw attention to yourself, right? You don't want to put on the gloomy face, he says, walking around saying, oh, I'm so hungry, man, my belly, it's really growling over here, right? This is what people do, and so, and they, they do that for what reason? They don't want to announce, I'm very holy, I'm holier than all you people because I'm fasting. I want everyone to know how holy I am because I'm fasting today. They don't want to do that, but they want people to ask them, well, why are you so hungry? Oh, is everything all right with you? Right, What's going on with you? So that they can then announce under this guise of humility, right, that they are fasting so everyone will know. This is the way people are. When Jeremiah says the heart is desperately sick, right, that it is desperately sick and that it is deceptive, very wicked, this is what he means. This is the types of things that people do, the types of games, manipulation that they will do in order to draw attention to themselves but without just stating what their real intention is. Right? They won't come out and say, I want everyone to take notice of me, but they'll go about it in these uh, ways, uh, these deceptive ways in order to get people to ask them what's going on so that they can then announce publicly what they wanted to say the whole time which is, I'm very holy and righteous. Oh, and everyone's going to applaud me and, and go and spread the word about how great I am. This is what they're doing. This is what the hypocrite does. Whenever he fasts, he puts on the gloomy face. He neglects his appearance so that he will be noticed by men. He wants men to notice him, right, in this way so that they ask him and then he can announce to them all that he's doing so that he can receive the praise of men. And that's why I say, truly I say to you, they have their reward in full, right? If you're doing it for the praise of men, okay, you have your reward in full. You've got the praise of men. They said something about you. They took notice of you. Now you feel good about yourself. You're puffed up in your own mind because everyone knows how wonderful I am and and everyone knows how holy and righteous I am. That's your reward. But you're not going to get anything on the day of judgment from God because God sees your heart and he knows that you're not doing it for the right reasons. You're not doing it sincerely because you love God and because you're devoted to righteousness and truth and you want to do those things. You're doing it to draw attention to yourself, right? So in serving God, who are they actually serving? Themselves, right? They're serving themselves, right? It's for their own benefit. So you have your reward now in this present life. So instead of doing it that way, what should we do? But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men. Right. Make your appearance normal. Make it fresh. Make, make yourself look good so that you don't look all gloomy, doomy. You don't look all pale and gaunt so that people come up and say, is everything all right with you? Are, are you OK? Are you are you sick? Has something happened? No, don't do that at all. Make yourself look fine, look normal, so that no one notices and no one says anything to you about it because no one needs to know what you're doing. Now, he doesn't say lie about it. He doesn't say if someone says, hey, we're all going out to eat. Do you want to go with us? And you can just decline and say, no, I'm okay. I don't want to go. But then if they press you on it and say, we really want you to go and you need to tell them, well, I'm fasting right now then just announce it there's nothing wrong with saying what's going on but you're not doing it for that reason so he's not saying why he's just saying go about your normal life as you normally would do shouldn't we do this every day anoint our head and wash our face right this is what we do every day so that we look good we are presentable we don't look like a disheveled mess when we go out and about in public right we anoint ourselves we wash our face you put on some deodorant, you know, whatever it takes so that you can go out and you're presentable out in public. And no one notices that there's something off or something different about your appearance. That's the way that you should do it. And then no one's going to notice it, but your father's going to notice it. Your father in heaven, he sees it. He sees it in secret. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. God's going to reward you because he sees that you're doing it for the right reasons. You're not doing it for these ill motives, for your own attention, for your own vainglory. You're doing it because you love God and you want to serve God and you have some, something on your mind, right? Something that's pressing you. Uh, maybe it's a, a sin that you're wanting to overcome. Maybe there's some issue that's come up in your family. Whatever it is that has caused you to come to this, that's the reason that you're doing it and you're devoting yourself to this for the right reasons. God sees it in secret, and God will reward you in see- on what day? On the day of judgment. When he rewards you, it's not going to be a secret anymore. He's going to make it known. He's going to make it plain. That's as we talked about on Sunday from Psalm 37. Your righteousness will shine like the light, and your judgment like the noon day. But not right now. On the day of judgment, God will bring all of those righteous deeds forward, Not not that our righteousness is never seen in this life. Of course it will be seen in this life. We're to live in such a way, to let our light shine before men, but we're not doing it for that reason. Ultimately though, it's on the day of judgment that God will bring everything forward. He'll bring it forward and he'll reward us because of what we've done in secret, because it's not a secret to God. It's a secret to men, but it's not a secret to God because God sees it. And that's the one that we aim to please, not man, We want to please God. We want to serve him. Notice back in chapter six, verse four. He says, so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Then also in verse six, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then also then in verse 18. So that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So it's the same principle running throughout. Do it in secret so that God sees it. And then God will reward you in due time. Also, if we go to chapter 14. Chapter 14. Verse 23, it says, After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, and when it was evening, he was there alone. So Jesus, this is what he practiced as well. This is the same as going into your closet. He went to a desolate place. He went to a private place, and he was there alone. He's not praying to be seen by men. He's doing it, he's praying to God. He's praying to God there in secret, right, in this way. Also, Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5, verse 16 it says, But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. So he would slip away, meaning he's not announcing it. He's not proclaiming to everyone, I'm going to the wilderness to pray so that everyone knows what he's doing. He just slips away on his own and he goes to the wilderness to go and pray to God. And he's doing it in secret in this private way. Then one last passage, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3:22 says, "Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord whom you serve." So there, the slave is to obey their master as they're obeying the Lord and not to obey merely to please men, right? right? If the master is there, then they're going to obey. But if the master's gone, then I'm going to do whatever I want. No, that's not the way the slave should be. He should do it with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whether the master is present or not, he should do the will of his master. If what his master is requiring is consistent with the will of God just his daily chores, the daily activities and the jobs that he gives to the slave that are not contrary to the will of God, then the slave should do those whether the master is there or not. And he should do it for the Lord. God sees it, right? God sees what he's doing and work for the Lord and God will reward you on the day of judgment. That's the way that he should do. So we shouldn't serve only by way of man pleasing or eye service, external only, but it should be internal. It should be sincere whether we're dealing with other people or whether we're dealing with God, right? These activities like prayer and fasting, giving that are between us and God, we should do those with a sincere heart. This is the proper way to serve the Lord. Okay, verse 19. It says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys (coughs) and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Here in verse 19, uh, through the rest of, really the rest of this chapter, he's going to be dealing with issues related to uh, possessions, wealth, uh, security, all those things that are interrelated to wealth, possessions, comfort, the way that we live in this present life. Jesus talked a lot about money. He talked a lot about wealth, possessions, and the way that we view them and the way that we use those things. Because the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is something that many people are not able to deal with money. There are many people who cannot have a proper view of money, of wealth, and possessions. And isn't it true that the seed sown among the thorns in Matthew chapter 13, that it was choked out by the love of money, by the pleasures, the riches, the possessions of this life, right? This is what choked out the good seed that was sown there among the thorns. So it is a very dangerous, precarious uh, issue and we need to understand what the Bible says about the proper use of money. Don't we use money every day? We have to, right? Isn't much of our life concerned with money, right? We go to work every day to make money, and it's good and right for us to do that if it's done in the proper way. But it can consume us so that we have love of money, love of money, and that's the problem. That's what he's dealing with here. So money is not in and of itself evil, but the love of money is evil. But there are few people who don't have love of money, right? It's very hard for someone to control the love and the desire of possessions, of wealth, and of having these types of things. So he says in verse 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Don't store up treasures on earth, right? Don't have this this desire to store up vast amounts of wealth vast amounts of possessions of treasures so that you're living for this present life you're living for the possessions for the wealth for the treasures of life now of course he doesn't mean that every time we get our paycheck we should immediately go out and spend all of it and get rid of all of it or give it all away he doesn't mean that there's no place for us to have savings For us to store up and plan for the future for us and leave an inheritance he cannot mean those things right so he means this to the exclusion of the spiritual of the heavenly what has to be the priority right what has to be first on our mind right the spiritual and the eternal has to be first that's what has to be at the forefront of our mind and then everything else has to fit in within that has to be accommodated to this desire and this focus Of seeking first the kingdom of God but what happens with many people is what becomes primary what is at the forefront the forefront is money the forefront is possessions the forefront is the American dream of living this kind of a lifestyle and then God and religion and the things of God and spiritual things they are secondary and they have to be accommodated to my primary pursuit which is money and that can't be the case So God has to be first, and then money and the pursuit and storing up of wealth has to be accommodated within seeking God, meaning then that we will only give ourselves to those means that are lawful, consistent with the will of God and with the glory of God, that we won't use unlawful, unrighteous ways to accumulate for ourselves wealth, nor will we use our wealth to do unrighteous things, right? Both of those things must be rejected. So here he's talking about storing up treasures on earth to the exclusion of storing up treasures in heaven, just merely storing up treasures on this earth. He says, why would you do that? Right? Why would you have all of your time and energy focused on storing up treasures on this earth? Because the treasures of this earth, what are they like? They're like a vapor, like a fleeting vapor right? Like a, a, hand, a bird in the hand that flies away, right? Quickly, these things can be taken and they are gone. And here he lists a few things that can come and destroy very easily the value of our possessions. Moth, rust, thieves, right? If moths come and we have garments that are very valuable and a moth gets into our garment, our wardrobe, what happens to those valuable garments, they're moth-eaten. And who wants to wear that? Because everybody's going to laugh at you when you go out and you got holes all on it, And are you going to be able to go and sell them? No one else wants them. You're not going to be able to get anything for those. So the moths destroyed all of these garments, right? And people love clothes, don't they? They like to buy lots of clothes all the time, go shopping, get new clothes, right? Have a big wardrobe. People love this kind of stuff. But then the moth comes and it eats it all up. So you spend all that time, all that effort, all that money buying all those clothes and now they got holes in them because of a a bug, a moth that got in there and ate them all up and rust, right? Rust, this happens as well. People buy a a fancy car and then eventually, although today they don't rust because they're made of plastic, but back in the day when they made real cars that were made out of metal, uh, those things, what can happen to them? They rust up and you go and walk, Uh, pipelines in Oklahoma for a little bit, and you'll run across cars all over the place, sitting out on cinder blocks that are all rusted up. And one day in the past, those were brand new, brand new, shiny cars. That was someone's idol. He drove it off the lot, and it was the admiration of everyone in the town, this fancy car. And now it's sitting on cinder blocks, all rusted up, and it's worth absolutely nothing, right? Right? But they devoted all their time, all their energy, all their effort, right, to getting this thing. Thieves. Do we have thieves in our land? Everywhere. (laughs) You could start in Washington, D.C. We got thieves up there. Thieves in Washington that come and steal our money. We don't have a choice. We got to pay all these taxes. They take it all away. Then whatever little bit they leave you and you go and buy something, then some thief will break into your house and steal it from you, break into your car and steal what you have. This happens as well. So all of these ways, possessions on this earth are very precarious, right? They are very volatile in that you can have them one day. And then in an instant, their value can be lost. And if that's where all of your effort is, if that's where your desire is, this is all that you care about is your possessions, your wealth, all of these things that you've gotten. And now they're worth nothing, right? They have no value or they're gone. Someone took it away from you right? This is what happens to them. In this life, that can happen. You can lose them. Possessions are that fleeting that even while we're still alive, we can lose them. But what about at death? We're going to take any of those things with us? No. We're not going to take our garments with us. We came into the world naked and naked will leave the world. We're not going to take it. We're not going to take our gold. We're not going to take our silver, our money, our paper money, which is worth nothing. We're not going to take any of these things, right? Our land, our house, all of our possessions, whatever it is, we're not going to take it with us. So again, why would we live for these things? Yes, we need them for this present life. God gives them to us for this present life, but we cannot live for these things. That's what Jesus is talking about. Putting all of your desires, your delight in storing up treasures on this earth. So he says, don't do that. It's very, very foolish for a person to live in this way. What is the opposite? But rather, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. Store up treasures in heaven, heavenly treasures. Okay, well, one, those things are secure. There's no insecurity in heaven. They're very secure. There's no moths in heaven. There's no rust in heaven. There's no thieves in heaven. They're not there. Yes, there's no thieves. That means there's no politicians in heaven, right? (laughs) So they won't be able to steal our money there in heaven. So none of these things are in heaven. So if we have treasures there, they are secure. There's no way that they can be lost, that they can lose their value, that they can be taken away from us. And how long will we enjoy those treasures? Forever. Forever, right? Forever, forever we will enjoy them. Whatever treasures we have in this life, at most, we can enjoy them only in this life. But we can't enjoy them in the life to come. But these heavenly treasures, we enjoy in the life to come. Also, even in this life, when we're storing them up, there's even great reward in that, in this life, right? In knowing that we're doing the will of God, right. that it's pleasing to God. And also, if it's helping our fellow man, right, if it's a brother who has a need, and we're meeting that need. There's great joy in that as well, right? To be able to serve and to minister to one another. So we get advantage and value in in this life in terms of the spiritual blessing. And then we get the heavenly reward for all eternity, the use of those things for all eternity. So if you're looking at the two, which one is the wiser? Right. Wh- which one has his mind properly ordered? The one who's storing up treasures in heaven, not the one storing up treasures on earth. Right. If I knew that I was moving to another state or another country right, in a week, would I be pouring thousands and thousands of dollars right, into my properties, into my house to make upgrades that I know I'm never going to get a return on? Why would I do that? I wouldn't do that. You'd be putting that into the place that you're going to be moving to so that you can enjoy it when you get there. Well, isn't that our case here? We're here but for a moment, but that's where we're going, to the heavenly country. So where do we want our treasures? Do we want our treasures in the land that we're leaving, or do we want our treasures in the land that we're going to? We want it in the place that we're going to. And when will we go there? In just a little while, a very, very short amount of time. That's where we will be. So why live for this present life? Again, yes, there is a measure of wealth, of possessions that we need for our day-to-day living, right? So that we can have those things and God gives us and he blesses us with riches. And it's okay for us to use those things for our family, for our own comfort, right? For our own enjoyment of lawful things in this life to be a blessing to the church, to be a blessing to others. We should do those types of things. So he's not forbidding us from using whatever God gives to us for this present life, but not living for those things, right? That's the issue, not loving them and not living for them. We have to live for the spiritual. And then verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. The way a person spends their money tells you all you need to know. It tells you everything that you need to know. If a person is greedy and miserly with his money, if all he cares about is bigger houses, nicer toys, more possessions, more money, then whatever he says about his love for God and he can't wait to go to heaven one day, you know he's lying, you know he's lying because he shows that he's a worldly minded man. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. A person who uses his treasure then for spiritual heavenly purposes, then you know that person's heart is in heaven, right? right? You know that that is the case. So this is one of the clearest indicators of the condition of the person, the condition of the heart. Where the treasure is, that's where the heart will be. So can you know what is in the heart of a man? According to this passage, you can, right? How do they spend their money? How do they spend their wealth and their possessions? Well, it tells you what you need to know about their heart. So yes, we can't see into the heart of man the way that God can, but we can see the way that they spend their money. And the way that a person spends and uses his wealth, is he gracious, is he generous, but right. Is he spiritually and eternally focused? Tells you where his heart is, right? It tells you everything that you need to know. Okay, a couple of passages. First, Luke 12. Luke 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, Tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me, but he said to him, "Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you?" Then he said to them, "Beware and be on guard against every form of greed, for not even one who has an abundance, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions." He told them a parable saying the land of a rich man was very productive and he began reasoning to himself saying what shall i do since i have no place to store my crops then he said this is what i will do i will tear down my barns and build bigger ones there i will store all my grain and my goods and i will say to my soul soul you have many goods laid up for many years to come take your ease eat drink and be merry but god said to him you fool this very night your soul is required of you And now, who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So here, this man in the crowd, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. You think about all the people who have lived in the history of the world and how many people in world history had the opportunity to see Jesus and ask a question of Jesus. And all this man can think about is what? His His money, his inheritance. He's not talking about eternal life. He's not talking about forgiveness of sins. He doesn't want to talk about spiritual things. He wants Jesus to be an arbitrator and judge between him and his brother and get his inheritance. Now, whether he has a legitimate claim or not, it doesn't say. But there's courts for that, to deal with that. But not when you're standing in front of Christ. That's the time to talk about Eternal life, spiritual things. And that's why Jesus confronts this man and says, Who made me a judge and arbitrator over you? And then openly, right? He's saying this openly right? in front of everyone, in front of this man, and in front of all the crowd as well. He says, Beware and be on guard against every form of greed. Right? The root, what is going on in this man's heart, is greed or covetousness. That is what would lead him to say what he's saying. And then he says that one, even one who has an abundance of possessions, his life does not consist of his possessions. That's how people judge men in this present world. The more they have, the richer they have, the more that they are admired by men. But should we admire this man? No, he's a fool according to God. That's what God says. God calls him a fool and because he had all these possessions, he had plenty. He could have given much of it away to the poor, but he didn't do that. He stored it all up for himself so that he could sit back, eat, drink, and be merry for the rest of his life. But how long was the rest of his life? Just that night, right? He died, and that was the end of it. And then someone else got all of his treasures. And this is the way it is for everyone, right, Who is stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God, right? He's rich in this present world, according to men, but he's not rich towards God, right? That's what we want to be, rich in faith, rich in faith. That's according to uh, James chapter two, verse five. We want to be rich in faith, rich towards God. This man wasn't rich towards God. He had no faith. It's obvious he doesn't have faith. He's not thinking about the life to come. He doesn't have the conviction of things not yet seen. He only has the conviction of things that are seen, things that he can touch, things that he can put in his barns, things that can give him a comfortable life filled with many pleasures and many experiences in this present life. Okay, so that's what Jesus is dealing with here. Uh, It's the storing up treasure on earth to the expense of heavenly eternal pursuits. We have to have the kingdom of God first. Seek first the kingdom of God And then these other things have to be fit in within that, right? We have to store up in the proper way according. Now, that Jesus doesn't mean don't store up anything. A couple of passages. Proverbs chapter 13. Proverbs 13. And verse... 22. Proverbs 13, 22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. So a good man or a righteous man, a wise man, in contrast to an evil man, an unrighteous man, a foolish man, right? the good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Now that inheritance Primarily, should be spiritual, right? An inheritance of faith, right. but also material as well. That a righteous man wants to leave an inheritance to his children, right? He wants to leave some possession to them. and this, we have examples of in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, that they all did that uh, toward their children, that they gave to them an inheritance. They gave to them possessions as a blessing to them in this present life. And that's good and right for us to do that. Well, how can you leave an inheritance if you don't store something up? It's impossible. If you squander it all, if it's all gone, then it's impossible for you to leave an inheritance for your children. Now, should we leave an inheritance to children to the expense of storing up treasures in heaven? No, but are those two things mutually exclusive? No, they can both be done in the right way, right? The proper way. That we give to God what we owe to God, and then we store up according to what we have, uh, according to the blessing of God. Also, Proverbs 21. Proverbs 21, verse 20. says, There is precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man swallows it up. So, precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise. The wise man does have precious possessions in his house, right? Not only spiritual, but also material as well. Because the wise man is typically, well, he is, he's not typically, this is always going to be the case. He works hard, he's diligent, he's frugal, he's not foolish in the way, he's not going blowing his money at the casino. He's not blowing it on prostitutes. He's not blowing it on uh, drugs and alcohol. He's not doing those things. He works hard. If he works hard, then don't you typically get promoted to better positions? Isn't that the case? Isn't everyone looking for someone who's dependable? Well, if you are righteous and you're working the way that you should work, your employers are going to notice those things and you're gonna be promoted. Or if you have your own business and you work hard, then people are going to want to hire you to do those things. This is the way it works. And typically you make more money. You make more money over the course. Not that wicked people can't make a lot of money. We know that they can. And many of them are very good businessmen. And many of them are very hard workers. They can be. But the righteous man should be a very hard worker. And as a result, there will be some blessing there in terms of prosperity and possession. Also, Genesis 41 Genesis 41. Genesis 41, verse 46. says, Now Joseph was thirty years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of these seven years, which occupied which occurred in the land of Egypt, and placed the food in cities, he placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Thus thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. So here Joseph is storing up, right? And he's storing up physical things for this famine that he knows is coming. And in the same way, we should store up so that we have uh, money set aside if something unexpected happens to us, so that we have the ability to deal with unexpected, unforeseen circumstances that might arise. right? This is the way that we should be, and we shouldn't just squander our money and blow it aimlessly on all sorts of frivolities as many people right. many people do. So he's not saying that there's no place to store up or to be wise and to plan. And to leave an inheritance, he can't mean that. He means it to the exclusion of spiritual. The spiritual must be first. Storing up treasures in heaven must be first. And then storing up treasures on earth in the proper way must fit in and be under the spiritual pursuits of heaven. Okay, verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Here, Jesus is using a way of speaking, a metaphor concerning the body to teach about a spiritual or a moral principle or a moral truth here. And here specifically, I think he's relating it to money, to money, to covetousness, to greed though the principle would be true for other sins as well, right, for other sins, but here, because what he's talking about before is storing up treasures in heaven, and then what he talks about after this is you can't serve God and money. So he's using this as a way of teaching concerning the love of money, concerning covetousness, and the one who has to have the right perspective, the right view of money. And if we have the wrong view of money, then we're going to be in darkness and it's going to have an ill effect on us in many different ways. Okay. So the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light, right? In terms of the members of the body, the eye is the lamp. The eye is the one that we use to see, right? In that the lamp gives light so that we can see the room. We see the obstacles. We know which way that we ought to go. And so the eye is the lamp of the body. The eye is that member, that instrument in the body that is used to give light to the whole body so that it benefits the whole body, right? And if your eye doesn't work properly, then who suffers? It's not just the eye that suffers, but the whole body suffers, the feet, the legs, the arms, the hands, the head, whatever it is. Because if you trip over something because you don't see it, you're going to fall and hit your head or break your arm or break your leg. And it's going to have a very negative impact on the rest of the body, right? So if your eye is the lamp and your eye is clear, meaning you're able to see properly with your eye, then the whole body will be full of light and it's going to benefit every member of of the body because you're going to be able to see and you're going to know which way to go but if your eye is bad your whole body will be full of darkness right this is the converse if you have a bad eye if it's bad it doesn't work properly then your body is going to be full of darkness you're not going to be able to see and it's going to impact the rest of your body you're going to trip over this or that you're going to step in a hole and twist your ankle You're not going to see the viper in the road. You're going to step on it. It's going to bite you, right? It's not going to be good for you at all. Okay, so that's the metaphor in terms of the body. Now, he means this in terms of spiritual things, in terms of spiritual things. If your spiritual eyes have light, and specifically here in relationship to money, in relationship to storing up treasures in heaven and not on earth, then the whole spiritual man is going to be full of light. But if your spiritual eye is darkness in relationship to wealth, in relationship to storing up treasures on earth, to the expense of storing up treasures in heaven, right? That's the man who sees properly is the one who stores up treasures in heaven. The man who has a bad eye is the one who only stores up treasures on earth, right? And his eye is bad because he's not thinking about heavenly things, The one with the good eye is the one with the eye of faith. He sees that there is a life to come. He knows that his life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He knows that the riches of this world are very fleeting, that they are very insecure, so he's not putting his hope in those things. If God gives him riches, that's fine. He'll use them for the glory of God, but his life is not dependent on the abundance of his riches. And whatever riches he does have, he's using them for the glory of God. He's using them according to the will of God, and he's using them to be a benefit to other people. So if his eye is light, if he by faith has the right view and understanding of wealth, then it's going to benefit every part of him. He's going to relate properly to God because he's not going to be a slave to money. He's going to be a slave to God, and he's going to use it the way that God tells him to do it. He's going to be a benefit to others as well, isn't he? Isn't he going to benefit the poor? If he sees the poor man who has a need, he's going to go and help him. He's going to be a benefit to the church. He's going to be a benefit to his family because he knows that, isn't it true that many people who love money, don't they neglect their family many times? They neglect their family because they love money even more than they love their own family. They're more concerned with possessions than they are with their own family. They neglect their children. They neglect their wife. They do all those kinds of things. Well, a person who sees all of these things, right? He's not going to do those things. So he's going to rightly relate to God, rightly relate to his fellow man, rightly relate to the church, rightly relate to the poor and to himself because he's not going to be consumed with greed. And the result is he's going to have light in his whole body. He's going to use his money towards God, towards self, toward family, neighbor, toward the poor. And his disposition will be cheerful. He'll be a pleasant person. He'll be a gracious person, right? He's not selfish in doing those types of things. But if the person has a bad eye in terms of no faith, and he's a lover of money, a lover of possessions, this isn't sinful, evil disposition, then it's going to cloud his judgment on everything. Is he going to give to God what is his due? No, he can't part with it. He won't give to God. He might give 20 here or there. He might give one or 2%, but he's not going to give according to the biblical standard. He's not going to give 10%, and he's not going to give above and beyond that. He's not going to do that at all because he can't part with his money. If he does that, he's not going to be able to live the lifestyle that he wants to live. So he's not going to relate rightly to God, to God's law. He's not going to relate rightly to others because he's going to be stingy. He's going to be greedy. And then ultimately, who's it going to have a negative impact upon? Himself. Because aren't these people miserable creatures? Don't they call them misers? What is a miser? A miser is a rich person who's stingy, like uh, Scrooge, right? From uh, the uh, Christmas Carol, right? He wasn't a happy person. He's miserable, but he's very rich because he's greedy. He's covetous. Right? He's always thinking about money and how he can get more and more money. They're sad. They're sorrowful. They have no enjoyment. They're anxious over it. Right, Who's going to take it? Who's going to steal it? That's all that they think about all the time is these types of things. So if the eye is bad, then the whole body is going to be ruined. Right, The judgment is not going to be proper. And that's why he says, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? If the light or if the principle that's ruling a man's life is sinful and evil, if it's darkness, then his whole life is going to be filled with darkness. So if what rules a man is love of money, then his whole life is going to be filled with what? Sin. Many, many kinds of sins. Because the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's going to lead to more and more sin. So this is a, uh, a base or a foundational sin. Love of money is one of those sins that leads to more sin. Necessarily, it always leads to many more kinds of sin. And because of this, if the light is darkness, how great is that darkness? So whatever is ruling the man, if what is ruling him is not consistent with truth and righteousness, then it's darkness, and it's going to ruin him and lead to much more darkness. So that's what Jesus means by using this metaphor, this way of speech, to describe these kinds of things. Okay, a couple of passages. First, Ecclesiastes 5, and again, this principle would be true not just in terms of covetousness and love of money, but of any sin whether that be pride, fear of man, uh, anxiety, lust, anger, whatever it is. Whatever it is that rules the man, whatever he is enslaved to, if what he's enslaved to is darkness, then it's going to cloud his judgment so that in all of these different areas of life, he's not going to walk properly according to the law of God. Okay, Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich does not allow him to sleep. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. That was the parable we read earlier of the rich man that wasn't rich toward God. He hoarded to his own hurt, right? When those riches were lost through a bad investment, and he had fathered a son, there was nothing to support him. And as he came naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life he also eats in darkness and with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and to enjoy oneself in all one's labor, in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, He has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift from God, for he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. So they are the contrast between the, the wicked rich and the righteous rich there at the end. And even in terms of the wicked rich, better to be a laborer, a simple laborer who's righteous than to be wicked and rich. Right, because he's sleeping good at night, but the wicked rich man he's not sleeping good at night at all. Right, he has no enjoyment in those things. Right, so there, the love of money, pursuing (coughs) storing up treasures on earth and not treasures in heaven, it leads to vexation, he says, sickness, anger, anxiety, right, toil and labor, vanity, futility. Right, these are all the things that it leads to, but when we are rightly ordered. And then we receive a blessing from God in terms of prosperity. Then there is proper enjoyment, satisfaction in those things. It's a blessing to us and a blessing to others as well because we're not living for those things and we understand them in their proper place and in their proper context. Okay, another passage, Luke 11. Luke chapter 11, verse 29 Luke 11, 29 says as the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the son of man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up with the men of this generation and the judgment and condemn them because they came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of solomon and behold something greater than solomon is here Uh, the men of nineveh will stand with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of jonah and behold something greater than jonah is here no one after lighting a lamp puts it away in a cellar nor under a basket but on a lampstand so that those who enter may see the light the eye is the lamp of your body when your eye is clear your whole body is full of light but when your eye is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. Then watch out that the light that is in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light, with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined, and when the lamp illumines you with its rays. So here, this principle of the light and the darkness applies to other things as well. Here he's not talking in the context of money, but of unbelief, the unbelief of the people as they've seen the signs and the miracles and wonders and have heard and experienced the person and work of Jesus Christ, and yet they are still with unbelief, right? So they don't have light, they have darkness, and then how great is that darkness that is within them? Okay, then verse 24, Matthew chapter 6, And verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other, you cannot serve God and wealth. Here, this is an obvious truth. You can't serve two masters. A slave cannot have two masters because at some point, the will of the two masters are going to come into conflict. And when those come into conflict, if one master says, go out to the field and work, and the other master says, no, go to the city and go pick this up for me, and he goes to the city then who is his true master? The one who told him to go to the city, not the one who told him to go to the field. Whoever he obeys, that is the one that is his true master. And this is the way it is with God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot be a slave to God and a slave to money. It's either one or the other. You're either a slave to God or you are a slave to wealth. And this will be manifested in, in the life of the person. What will they do to get their wealth, right? Will they commit sin to get wealth? If so, then God is not their master. Will they neglect their spiritual duties to get wealth? If they do that, then God is not their master. I don't care what they say, right? right? He is not their master. If they neglect their spiritual, if you will commit sin for money, then God is not your master, right? Right? That's what he means here. So we have to judge ourselves according because if God isn't your master, then where do you go? You don't go to heaven, you go to hell. If money is your master, then you go to hell. If God is your master, you go to heaven. So is this an issue of life and death? So the way people spend their money is an issue of spiritual life and spiritual death. Heaven and hell eternal blessing or eternal condemnation. So we have to take it very, very seriously. And we have to examine our life to make sure that we're not slaves to money instead of slaves to God. Be a slave to God, not a slave to money. Hold your treasure in your hand, but don't let it go into your heart, right? That's what we have to do. We have to hold it and use it rightly as it comes to us from God, but not let it go into our heart and possess us so that we become a slave to money, Luke 16, Luke 16, 1 to 18, it says, now he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. He called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you, Give an accounting of your management? for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors and he began to say to the first, how much do you owe the master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. Then he said, take your bill, sit down and quickly write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager, because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is also unrighteous in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him right. he said to them you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men but God knows your heart for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John and since that time the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to fall everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. So here, the parable of the dishonest manager is given to teach that we should be shrewd in the use of our wealth, in our money, right? In terms of our relationship to God, the money we have now, which he calls unrighteous wealth, right? Unrighteous wealth, because... Much wealth is obtained unrighteously, and much wealth is spent unrighteously. Right in this present life. Now, he doesn't mean that we should obtain unrighteous wealth, nor does he mean that we should spend our wealth on unrighteous things. But he's just meaning, generally speaking, wealth is tends to evil. It tends to unrighteousness. Either the way people acquire it or the way that they spend it is in some way related. To unrighteousness. So that's what he means by figuring it in this way. He's just saying, generally speaking, this is what is true about money. And what is the proper use of money in this life of wealth? Well, the way we should look at it as a steward, that God has entrusted this to us, and the wise use of the wealth that God has placed in our stewardship is to use it in such a way so that when it fails us, And when will it fail us? On the day of our death. When we die, the wealth that we have will stay here and it will not go with us into the life to come. But there is the potential for there to be friends there waiting for us in the life to come who will welcome us into eternal dwellings. And that the wealth we used in this life will be evidence of our righteousness and we will be rewarded for that in the life to come. That's the proper use of wealth, to use it in such a way in this life that you store up treasures for yourself in the life to come. That's what we're supposed to learn from the unrighteous or unjust steward. Not to be a jerk like him, not to swindle our master like like he did. Of course we shouldn't do that. He's commended because he used his temporary position to secure his future after that temporary position was taken away from him. And we should use our temporary possession of wealth to secure our eternal dwellings that we will enter into in the life to come, to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And if we're not faithful in unrighteous wealth in this life, then why is he gonna give us true riches in the life to come? If we're not faithful with what belongs to another, it doesn't belong to us, it belongs to God. Why is he gonna give you your own riches in the life to come? Because if you're not faithful in the little thing, you're not gonna be faithful in the big thing. If I can't trust you to watch my dog, am I gonna let you watch my children? Of course not, of course not, and there's no way. Because why would I entrust you with something greater value if you can't even do something of lesser value? If a child cannot properly manage $10, am I going to give them a thousand? Am I going to give them a million? If an employee cannot do a simple task, then am I going to give them something very important to do? Of course not. You're not going to do that. If you're faithful in the little things, then you'll be faithful in the greater things. The little things is our wealth that we have now. The greater thing is the eternal riches of the life to come. And who's he speaking against in this? The Pharisees the religious people who were lovers of money. And what do they do? They're scoffing at him, mocking him, ridiculing him because of his teaching about money. But they're the ones who justify themselves before men. So we can't serve both God and money. This is as Elijah said, how long will you go limping between two opinions? Right, if the Lord is God, then serve him. But if Baal is God, then serve him. But quit going back and forth between the two. If money is God, then go serve money. But if the Lord is God, then serve Him. But don't say the Lord is God while you're serving money. Quit doing these types of things. Okay, I think we'll stop there for tonight. And then we'll pick up next time with a related topic, which is anxiety. Anxiety uh, and the sin of anxiousness that often is related to what? money money it's always related to unbelief but is often related to a overemphasis and preoccupation with money with money and possessions security you know wanting all those types of things in this life that we think money gives to us <clears throat> but money doesn't give us security who gives security only god only god Okay, so we'll stop there, and we've got some time for any questions, Um, so if anyone has anything...